Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. It's often said that the Reformers, and later the Pilgrims, advocated for religious liberty, which is understood to mean the freedom to believe whatever you want. But is this really the kind of freedom they had in mind? In this episode, Cameron and I discuss the tensions between the biblical and classical understanding of liberty as the freedom to pursue the good on the one hand, and the later Enlightenment idea of liberty as the freedom to pursue whatever you want on the other. Laurie and I have just returned from our vacation in Paris. We talked on the commentary already about a theology of vacation, but I have a thought that I'd like to explore, Cameron, based on one of the experiences that I had while I was in Paris. So let me set this up. Uh, We were staying in an Airbnb that was right across an alleyway from this beautiful medieval church. When we looked out the window, the, the church filled the space. It was just surreal to see this site. But there was one strange note, which is historical. This church was the church that uh, rang the bells to signal that it was time to begin the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. Uh, For listeners who don't know, uh, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was this famous event in the wars of religion, where a group of Protestants had come to Paris to celebrate a wedding uh, that was supposed to bring peace to the various factions. But instead, the Catholics rose up secretly and massacred all of these Protestants. Um, supposedly, depending on you know what estimates you look at, it could be, um, I think, two or 3,000 people, maybe, mm-hmm. as many as that, who were killed. So that note, you know, <laughs> certainly struck me as a, a Protestant Calvinist pastor. I warned Lori in advance, if we hear the church bells ringing, we should hide <laughs> just to be on the yeah. safe side. But of course I was curious. And so I went and visited the church and outside the church is a marker and one of those uh, sort of printed guides that you can consult that has explanations of the history of the church and it tells this story. So I found myself uh, one night deciphering the text, translating as best I could, and it seemed to be saying something like this, that the people who died in this massacre gave their lives in the cause of religious freedom, that although they died, they were able to if not gain, at least sort of be part of the process that ended up gaining the right for people to believe whatever they want to believe. Mm. And as I read that, I thought, you know, there's something really odd about that because the historians are describing the sacrifice that these people made in terms that the people themselves would not have recognized. Like no one who was there, no one who was a victim of this event would have said, The thing that I'm standing up for is the right to believe whatever you want to believe. They had a different idea of what it was that they were 
were after. And I guess if I, if I was trying to summarize it, I would say it wasn't the freedom to believe whatever you want to believe. It was something more like the freedom to get things right. And they wanted the freedom to do what was right, and they felt that they were being prevented from doing what was right. In this case, what was biblical. They couldn't worship the way the Bible told them to do, and that was what they were attempting to secure. But does that distinction make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm I'm trying to get into the minds of, of those people. You know, I'm not too familiar with that historical event sure. either, but it seems to me like as Protestants, especially during that time, they would have been, uh, yeah, very invested and interested in their kind of newfound faith. And I suppose the Catholics felt that way too, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of where the tension comes up. But it sounds like what you're saying is these, these Protestants who were, who were killed were seeking a kind of freedom, but not in the sense that the history remembers right not, not, the, not the way that we look back on it yeah put it that way um, it seems like a very maybe a french a french notion <laughs> to look back on something like that and say oh well they were paving the way so we could all believe whatever we want yes or or maybe uh maybe this is saying the same thing but an enlightenment notion sure yeah right that this is the way the enlightenment looks back and sees the the value of the wars of religion was that people finally figured out there's no point in fighting over religion. Yeah. We should just believe what we want to believe. And instead, we should fight over nationalism or something mm. like that. Um, that sort of march of progress narrative, I think, is very enlightenment. And of course, you know, France in many ways gave birth to the enlightenment. But even if you're not familiar with that history, I think in American history, we have a similar kind of phenomena, right? When we talk about the Pilgrim Fathers and the original settlement in New England, one of the things you'll often hear people say as if it's this great irony that people at the time wouldn't have been conscious of is that they came over the Atlantic to the New World in search of religious freedom, and then ironically refused to let other people have that same freedom. Mm. Like they got here and they set up their own little states and their own churches, and if people didn't agree with them, they persecuted them just like they'd been persecuted. And that's often portrayed as a great irony, like something that they just weren't conscious of. But I think, it, again, it, it makes a mistake of reading modern ideas back into these historic people. They didn't come over to the New World in order to establish a society where everyone could believe what they want to believe. They came in order to establish a society where they could worship as they'd been commanded to do in Scripture. So they were looking for freedom, but not the freedom to just do what you want to do, they were looking for the freedom to get it right, the freedom to actually pursue the good as they understood it. So with that in mind, I think it's worth thinking about the difference between those two conceptions of freedom. Yeah. Because I'm going to say that most of us, when we think about freedom, our idea of freedom is more connected to that enlightenment idea that freedom is the ability to do whatever you want, right or wrong. Whereas an older Christian conception of freedom, and I would argue a biblical conception of freedom, 
doesn't see freedom as the ability to do whatever you want, but actually as the ability to do the good. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a classical understanding of what freedom is. It's, yeah. it's not unique to Christianity or unique to the Bible in the classical world. The idea of uh, freedom as like the removal of impediments to the pursuit of the good or the pursuit of virtue was a common way of thinking about freedom and what freedom is for. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's kind of a an interesting tension there because a lot of good, uh, quote-unquote, conservative Christians, when they think about what freedom is, talk about freedom very much in that more pluralistic, believe what you want to believe, do what you want to do kind of way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the political aspect. I was going to say this sort of religious freedom rhetoric seems to be baked into America's constitution as well. You know, we, we think that it's a right as an American to express our religion, however we see fit. Though I'm curious if you think, if you think that truly religious people really believe that anyone should be able to believe whatever they believe. I ask that because sometimes it seems like, even though if that's what we say, what we really mean is everyone or I, I should be able to express my beliefs or everyone should believe things just like I do. Right. So, okay, this is a great question because I'm going to say I think there's a tension here and it's not an easy one to resolve mm-hmm. because, yes, there's a sense in which if you are deeply committed to the truth that you believe in, you want other people to see that truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you really do believe in the claims of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. you want other people to accept him as well, right? So you're not content to just say, hey, believe whatever you want to believe. Mm -hmm. But in another sense, I think it's true that we all benefit from an environment where we have this kind of freedom, even if that freedom is abused, we still benefit from being able to believe what is right. Um, and as a result, it's not as easy as saying, well, here's the good view of freedom and here's the bad view and saying, you know, instead of having religious freedom and people can just worship however they want to, we should only have the true worship. There's a part of me that says, well, yeah, of course, in theory, in a perfect world, that makes sense. But in this world, which is far from perfect, Mm -hmm. I think you could make a really good case for why that kind of toleration, that kind of uh, pluralistic approach can be beneficial to true religion. Mm. And so here I think it's it's <laughs> not as easy as it may seem to just say, well, no, we just need to stick with this older idea of freedom right. and dismiss this newer one, because in some respects we benefit from the newer one. Or uh, put it another way, so... Uh, Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, if you compare it to other orthodox, small orthodox, reformed denominations, we tend to be seen as broader, right? That within the PCA, there's a spectrum of different kinds of people, different kinds of churches. Some of them, you know, like ours, more liturgical, maybe high church, whatever. Others where the emphasis is very sort of evangelical and and maybe you wouldn't see a lot of difference between that church and another evangelical church. Sometimes people ask, 
why would you want to be part of a denomination that has that kind of breadth? Mm. Why wouldn't you rather be part of a denomination where, where there's a sameness? Well, like every church is more or less the way we are. Yeah. And, you know, I struggled with that question. I understand. I, I get it. Um, it's always frustrating to me, you know, if I'm at a PCA church and I'm like, I can't tell this apart from a Baptist church, you know? <laughs> I mean, sure. of course, I want... Yeah. I want people to be like us. You know, I, w- I want them to value what we value. But the the thing that I kept coming back to whenever I would have, you know, friends question me about this is, sure, yeah, we do have, let's say, the freedom to get things wrong. But we also have the freedom to get things right. And that's what I was looking for. Like, I wanted to be in an environment where it was possible to actually pursue what I thought the right positions were and the right things were without the impediment of a tradition that precluded it. Mm. So, you know, I could be in a, a denomination where communion is practiced infrequently, you know, monthly or quarterly or whatever. And I might believe, no, it should be weekly. It should be every Lord's Day. But because of the inertia of that sort of sameness, it would be very difficult to go against that and actually have the practice that we have. Whereas in our denomination, there's enough latitude to where you can do things like that um, in, and I'm using air quotes here, the right way. You know, of course, not, we don't all agree on yeah. what the right way is, but, but, but we have the, quote, freedom to pursue the good as we see it. So we benefit from that. And of course, if, if you're of a more, um, I don't know, not, not conservative exactly, but if, you, if you're sort of uncomfortable with that breadth, you might prefer more of that sameness. And, and I'm not dismissing that. I think that's the other side of the tension, hmm. right? It's, it's the pursuit of the good on the one hand, and then it's sort of the art of the possible on the other. Yeah. You know, and I think we have one idea of freedom, a biblical conception of freedom that is about getting it right, is about doing what is true worship. And then we have what you might think of as like a more pragmatic, uh, this is a fallen world kind of insight that comes to us from, you know, our our legacy of reformed political thought that fed into the enlightenment that Mm -hmm. says maybe there's a benefit, at least, you know, tactically speaking, to having an environment where we have, you know, this quote unquote marketplace of ideas and it's, not possible to enforce everyone doing the same thing. No, no uniformity in the sense of the old Anglican church, but it is possible to get it right here. And it's your, your, your right to get it right is protected. (laughs) We're coming up to Halloween here. So I'm thinking about the, well, actually reformation day, you know, comes first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, But I'm thinking about that old, that old uh, Reformation line, always reforming. Yes. And I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think it relates to this conversation where some traditions within the church see that phrase as kind of a license to pursue that, that unbounded enlightenment religious freedom that you were mentioning. Always reforming means that we're just we're doing, you know, we're doing, we're progress. That's right. what, you know, it's right. progress. Um, 
Is that what the reformers meant though with that phrase? No. And I think that, you know, that really nicely touches on this distinction, right? That a lot of people, when they talk about always reforming now, what they mean is more like always reinventing, always reimagining, Mm -hmm. um, always recontextualizing, something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, The reformers had an idea of of reformation according to scripture. Mm -hmm. So when they talk about always reforming, I think what's behind that is an understanding that our efforts to bring our worship into line with Scripture are always imperfect. Hmm. And so, although we have steered things back towards the trajectory of God's revelation, we haven't done it completely. Hmm. And so there's going to be a need in the next generation to bring things even more into line. Hmm. And so their idea of, let's say, the the ark is not the ark of progress. It's not that we're sort of going ever upward as we sort of reinvent the faith for this moment. Their ark is more like one that's sort of bending along with the curve of Scripture, trying to get closer so that the, the line of our practice and the line of Scripture overlap more yeah. and more and become indistinguishable. Mm. And I think that's the difference. So yeah. they're pursuing the idea of like the freedom to do the good, right? The freedom to pursue the truth. We, in our sort of misunderstanding of always reforming, are doing something more like the freedom to believe whatever you want to believe, mm. you know. Um, in theology, this idea of freedom, I think really has to be confronted because in our evangelical world, we have this understanding of freedom that allows us to say things like, uh, we are free to sin. I have the freedom to obey or I have the freedom to disobey. And when you hear me say that, depending on sort of your background and how much thought you've you've given to these things, you hear those words and either you're like, well, yeah, that's common sense. <laughs> or you're screaming saying, that's not what freedom is. <laughs> but you're probably not somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know, that we tend to either be aware of the problem or not. Mm-hmm. But but uh, the problem with that conception of freedom is that it, it casts disobedience and sin as expressions of freedom. Mm-hmm. And the problem... There, of course, is that the Bible doesn't describe sin as freedom. It describes sin as bondage. Mm-hmm. So whenever we are disobedient, whenever we are sinful, uh, we may be, quote-unquote, freely choosing these things, but that's not really freedom in the biblical sense. That's an expression of bondage mm-hmm. because real freedom is the freedom that that projects itself towards truth and obedience, yeah not just towards whatever you happen to want to do. So again, like whether we're talking politics and society or we're talking theology, these different conceptions of freedom will lead you in very different directions. The difficulty is oftentimes we're just not conscious of the difference. And when we see that word freedom, we think about freedom, we tend to think in our enlightenment categories, in our American categories, and not even stop to ask ourselves if maybe scripture defines freedom differently. So all that to say, that's, let's say, uh, one of the many um, 
fruits of my Parisian sojourn yeah, oh yeah. was this kind of extended reflection on how <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the freedom of the Reformation has come to be misunderstood yeah. through that historical lens and, and how recovering it, and why not recover it for Reformation Day, can yeah. be really beneficial. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.